This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Blindfolded with a cigarette jutting from its lip, privacy has now been officially proclaimed dead, executed by a slew of late 20th century tabloid photographers. And with a click a flash, and a prolonged whir, the images of the rich, the famous, the cruel, the inhumane, and even the superfluous have become frozen for all of prosperity, all for the consumption of the so-called common run of humanity. We the people are now just poor peeping toms in the guise of magazine shutterbugs, and we have become the creeping norm. Welcome to the age where nothing is sacred. It is amazing how inconsequentially so-called beautiful and no-talent glam gods can cause such a stir. The starlet in the raunchy sex video, the has-been actor on a racist rampage. And all this in light of the misery afoot in the world. Instead of metting out the proper punishment, a communal shunning, we debate the merits and details of the case at hand as if it contains some cosmic significance paying far too much attention to the body, minutia, even if our own lives are spiraling apart. It goes to show that in this day and age, even the mightiest pen frails before the short-lived pleasures of today's plastic ideal of so-called entertainment. What is most troubling about this media maelstrom is that no one can duck this evading and unruly lens, though try we might. We are captured on deli lines as we purchase a pack of cigarettes, and we are captured as we withdraw money from the bank. We are captured by the cold eye of city streetlights, and we are captured in the lobbies of tourist hotels. We are captured on cell phones and spy cams and posted on the Internet in whatever crude manner in order to glad-hand curious viewers. Wherever we walk, we do not walk alone. For there are those with a dead eye when it comes to daily scandal, the money mongers who constantly fish in troubled waters. An overheard scrap of conversation could later be featured on the website Overheard. A sidewalk stumble could become someone else's idea of a hilarious joke on YouTube, and a public lover's spat could be on the next cover of Star Magazine. With the recent unveiling of CIA monitoring activities during the Cold War, known in clandestine quarters as the Family Jewels, it would appear that the freedom this nation so proudly espouses has long been a pipe dream. Those whose convictions led them to oppose the state in order to improve upon it, who sought to wrong the rights, journalists and artists and everyday citizens who smelled the rotten Denmark and had the audacity to wrinkle up their noses, were closely monitored, like hooked fish dragged from a set line and casually heaped upon drying embroidery They were minutely catalogued and placed in the hold in order to be used as bargaining tools for a later date. Only real lives were involved with real consequences to careers and families, 
and it is disheartening to note that this country mimicked the tactics of the communist governments they so despised. Who is to say that you are not being watched right now? This is not paranoia speaking. Even if it was, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean everyone is not out to get you. When a nation engages in back-channeling and whispering techniques, it diminishes the value gap and throws the scales of justice out of whack. The ethical system shatters, leaving a misguided people to try and differentiate the shards. People can begin to wonder who is watching the watcher, and trust begins to crumble, and the idea of unity that defines our United States no longer becomes applicable. This could become our fate if we are not careful and vigilant. Visual and auditory mediums are important tools in our media-saturated society, but we are headed towards what Henry Thoreau foredoomed as we are becoming the tools of our tools. Many, many years ago, a mere unpopular pup in junior high school, I volunteered to work as the costume designer of the ninth grade drama production I had unsuccessfully tried out for. I worked with a gaggle of giddy girls, all somewhat relieved to be included in this annual school ritual. We were a bit of a motley crew, a few brainiacs, a girl with a lisp, and a couple of chubby, pimply teens with bad hair. It seemed as if all the social misfits were gathered together to try and glom onto some semblance of clique and community. The night before the big opening, we worked furiously into the wee hours and found ourselves finishing up as our classmates were arriving for their morning classes. Giddy and delirious, when we completed the last costume, we donned the silly, frilly outfits and gleefully ran around the hallways celebrating our success and whooping it up. I felt so proud at that moment. We worked so hard and felt that we had accomplished so much. Unaware that our fellow students had already started arriving for class, we ran headfirst adorned with both unfurling streamers and hubris into a cluster of condemnation from the popular girls who couldn't help but snicker at our weirdly misshapen outfits. We stopped for a minute, foolish and fearful, looking at them and then each other. And then we did something that surprised us all. With a whir and a rush, we kept happily running until we were out of breath and out of sight. We were embarrassed, we were proud, and we were crazy. And we didn't care that we had been seen in this way. Though we were foolish and outcasts, we were seen. There are those who seek the camera to tame it with their natural charms, tossing sly winks and come-hither smiles. But I think these silly souls only find themselves betrayed in the end, not only cuckolded by the obvious power that they seek, but drained of life by the camera's eye which is unforgiving in its judgment. Nowadays, one never knows when the lightning of ambition may strike, pointing you towards the senatorial chambers, or seating you upon the papal throne, or placing you in an oval office behind a polished desk with the eyes of the nation upon you, as you may explain why you were forced to nuke Uzbekistan. We may not remember the exact date of the Norman conquest of England or why we celebrate Memorial Day, but many of us do remember the fateful day that Princess Di of Wales broke the world's heart by succumbing in a fiery wreck. The historical memory of mankind may be brief, but the eye of the world, chilly and immobile, is the moment in time that is permanently affixed. Welcome to the 75th episode and the fourth season finale of Design Manners with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Shepard Ferry.
before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Shepard Ferry is the mind behind Obey, the most prevalent urban street mem in stencil art propaganda history. An astute student in the arts of persuasion, Ferry began his epic satire on the science of celebrity endorsements and the alchemy of suggesting desire back in 1989 while he was still a student at the Rhode Island School of Design majoring in illustration. Currently, Shepard is based in Los Angeles where he runs the design firm Studio Number no. 1. His most recent exhibit is in New York City and it is titled E Pluribus Venom. Shepard Ferry's new body of work contains politically charged paint, screen print, stencil, and collage mixed media pieces which use metaphor, humor, and seductive decorative elements to deliver pro provocative but beautiful results. These works blur the perceived barriers between propaganda and escapist decoration, political responsibility, and humor with the intent of stimulating both viscerally and intellectually. Welcome, Shepard. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Shepard, it's been a very dramatic morning for me and a very incredible 24 hours for you. You went to the hospital last night for emergency eye surgery, and now you've been discharged and somehow still wanted to do this interview despite everybody else in your life wanting you not to and it being canceled, and you insisted that we continue on, and thank you so much for being such a trooper. <laughs> Thank you. you know, I, I, I doubted you had Banksy on speed dial, so you know, <laughs> I try, try to do what I can. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you. I, I understand from Amanda, your wife, your wonderful wife, that you have type 1 diabetes, and which is a very serious diabetes, and had to have eye surgery last night to relieve some of the problems that you're having. Is, is everything okay? Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're doing physically? Sure. Um, yeah, I have uh, what's uh, what's called diabetic retinopathy, which uh, diabetes is very hard on your on your blood vessels, and eventually you, you can uh, develop bleeding in your eyes from the smallest blood vessels, which are very sensitive in your eyes. And uh, that happened to me about four years ago, and they did some laser surgery to correct it, and then just. While I was in New York for my show, a piece of the scar tissue from the laser surgery started to pull off the surface of my eye and detach my retina. Oh, my God. So um, right after I got back, um, they, they did a surgery which they cut open your eye and they remove all the, the vitreous gel that's in your eye, in the round space in your eye. They remove the scar tissue, do more laser surgery, and then they replace the, the gel with uh, a saline solution and a gas bubble. And the gas bubble floats to the top and forces your retina to heal in place. So it's pretty serious surgery, but I already had it done to the left eye just three months ago, and that, uh, and, and that went perfectly. And, uh, and I was in New York saying, all right, great, I got both eyes in perfect order, and, uh, and then that happened. But um, I, think, uh, I think everything's going to be fine. I well, kind of need my eyes, though. Yeah, I mean, that must be incredibly terrifying. It's the worst possible nightmare to not be able to use your eyes as an illustrator and an artist. My God. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. But, um, you know, the problem is for years I've had diabetes, and I wasn't always taking the best care of myself um, until five years ago when I got an initial bleed in one of my eyes because I'd always been really healthy. So I think... Uh, you know, I just wasn't as on top of it as I should have been. And then once uh, 
once that happened, I, I got on an insulin pump and I'm uh, regulated my blood sugars really well. But it takes uh, you know it takes a long time to correct for all the years of damage that have accumulated. And sometimes um, you know there's uh, nothing that that can be done except for these types of surgeries. But they said if I I recover well from this. It could be many, many, many years, if ever, before I have problems again. So I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, thank you so much for, again, for, for doing this in, in such a, in such a wonderfully professional way, despite everything that's, that's happening right now. Um, I, I was talking, listeners, I was talking to Shepard right before we went on the air. Um, even that he's been in the hospital, I didn't know if he knew that the so-called splasher, uh, has been arrested. I had dinner last night with John Kay, who is a senior district attorney in New York City, and he alerted me to the fact that the splasher, which is indeed James Cooper, the man who put on, who, who uh, set off the stink bomb at your show, Shepard, was indeed uh, the same man who is now being considered the splasher, and he is, has been arrested. So how, how did you feel that night? I mean, here's this work that you've been doing, and building to this incredible climax, your show, and then a stink bomb goes off. Um, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Well, I, uh, I had had a feeling that, that um, something might happen at the gallery, uh, whether it was that paint would be thrown on the window or my friends um, in the art collective fail, they had had a similar incident happen to them just two weeks prior where someone set off a stink bomb in the show and had called the police probably even prior to setting it off saying there was a gas leak in the gallery to try to disrupt the art show. Yes. And uh, we we actually were at the gallery working all day and all night um, with pretty much no time for the splasher to show up and do anything to the outside of the space. Um, for, the, for the entire week, we worked about 18-hour days um, setting up the show. So um, they didn't really have an opportunity. And when, when that happened, I, I assumed that... It was at least the same people that did, uh, that did the, smoke, the smoke bomb at the fail show. And, you know, I didn't really want to assume that it was the splasher because I think it's irresponsible to, uh, you know, to make those types of assumptions without evidence. But knowing that fail was the target of the splasher um, and that I was, we were two of the most prominent, that, um, and that it would be difficult for them to enter an art show with pain and throw it on something without being apprehended, it seemed like... Um, you know, it made sense that there was the possibility. And then also a lot of my work that I'd put up in Williamsburg was the first stuff to be on the street, was the first works to be splashed. And this guy, James Cooper, lived um, in Bushwick, which is just adjacent to Williamsburg. So um, all, of, all of that made me think that it was definitely plausible that he was the splasher. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, uh, I tried to talk to him, and he was, um, he was just evasive. He wouldn't really talk to me. He said... Oh, I came here with another guy. I had no idea he was going to do this. All of a sudden, he pulls out this this smoke bomb and tries to light it, and uh, and and you know, and and I was left holding the bag. And um, and uh, you know, I I uh, all I really said to him was, "Look, I don't know you. I don't know what your gripe is with me, but a lot of time, energy, and money was spent putting this event together. It's free to the public, free alcohol, awesome DJs, free for you. I'm paying for them." Um, there's nothing that would seem to fall outside of, um, you, you know, the splasher's belief that, um, that that art should be accessible and not, um, you know, if you don't want to pay any money to come in, you don't have to pay any money. And, uh, you know, I'm, I feel like it's, it's something I was doing 
um, you know, not just for myself but for people because I also was doing a show in Chelsea which was a more um, a more sort of uh, wine and cheese elitist gallery type atmosphere and the space in Brooklyn I did really just to show the connection between what I do as a street artist and what I do as a fine artist. Right. And, and um, you know, it was a big undertaking. So, yeah, I was upset. Um, but I, uh, you know... Were you actually able to speak time, to him at all? Every time I go out and I put a poster up, I know that I could get arrested. So if the guy was coming there knowing that, you know, with enough conviction to know what could happen to him um, and he was willing to take that risk anyway fine, but um, for him to say, oh, no, I, you know, I can't believe this is so terrible, what's going to happen to me? I mean, he went in there with malicious intent, and, uh, and now he's paying the, paying the price. So. <laughs> I don't really feel bad for him at all. No. Now, um, have you seen or, or heard anything about this manifesto that he and his, well, I don't know if he personally was giving them out, but certainly people as, that are part of his uh, posse were giving out uh, at, at two different galleries over the last week? Yeah, I, I got a copy of it, and um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's very, it's obvious that the person studied a lot of, um, you know, situationist theory, et cetera, they, they're using a lot of SAT words, um, and uh, the funny thing is, I love the situationists, um, I mean, in fact, like, my work is partially inspired by situationist theory as well, but their, um, but their take is incredibly negative, it's that... Um, you know, anything, anything once it, it's, um, it's got any sort of commercial application has been made invalid. And this is uh, obviously a very unrealistic standpoint within, uh, within the realm of capitalism. And, uh, and to say that an artist should be, should be punished once they're able to make a living from doing their art, I, I think is, uh, it, it's just a really, really, really negative and, and uh, unrealistic viewpoint. Um, I mean, it's like saying that once a band presses up their first CD or charges to enter a venue to see them, if uh, they do anything other than set their instruments up on the corner and play music, that they, um, they've been corrupted by the evil system. I mean, that's an analogy I would make. It's just a, um, it's just a really, really destructive um, waste of energy, I think. Um, I mean, I'm all about debate, and I know that uh, a lot of... A lot of my work that I create is, is about, um, you know, bringing um, issues, you know, to, pe to people to discuss. Um, however, uh, you know, I, I also know that most of the work I put up will be cleaned by the city or by building owners or I can be arrested or fined. And it, it's, it's frustrating with someone that I think is probably just a misguided peer is assaulting the work. Right. Um, but I always know that the work is temporary, so it doesn't really slow me down. It's just a little bit disheartening, that's all. Well, in terms of the actual splashings, I mean, do you feel that they add to, do they, that they meaningfully add to the dialogue of street art? I was reading in an article, an interview that you had with Steve Heller, and you said that you became a street artist because you felt public space was the only option for free speech and an expression without bureaucracy. And there seems to be a somewhat, the adding on quality, the, the power of association of, of putting one piece of street art on top of another, in, in many ways is part of the, I think, beauty and purity of street art. Do you feel that while destroying, do you feel like the splasher was destroying art or adding to it? Um, you know, I, I think that their, their goal, and if you read their, if you uh, if you read what they have to say, their goal is to destroy um, 
the, the person who interviewed himself as the splasher in uh, their news, their 16-page newspaper that they put out said that he hoped that his efforts would take the wind out of the sails of the artist. So in saying that, what he's really saying is, I hope that they stop making work, and then there would be no need for him to put his art so it's out there. So then it ceases to be a dialogue. Exactly. I mean, it's I, an it's attempt to eradicate. Um, and so I, I don't really think um, that there's anything that healthy in that discourse. Um, I think that there is something. There's something to be said for the debate that then ensues about um, about street art. Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, I'm fine with that. In fact, like, you know, the splashers gotten me uh, quite a bit of publicity as well as all the other people that have been splashed. And I think that, that you know, that's providing me a platform to share my viewpoint, which I don't really have a, a, a problem with. Uh, in fact, some people are saying, like, you should set a smoke bomb off at every art show you do. <laughs> well, if, if you take the... Um the splasher's philosophy away from the actual act itself. So forget the manifesto, forget the, the what's clearly, um, at least in, in my opinion, you know, jealousy, sour grapes type of response to the success that certain street artists have gotten. But the, the concept of adding on in the way that it has been added to the existing artwork on the street. What is your, your feeling about the act of adding on as opposed to this particular theory of no, why? Some, some people have, um, have uh, added works next to my works where, you know, a character that they paint is wrapping his arm around uh, a, a piece of mine. And I, I love that sort of collaboration. I even love some of the some of the stickers that have been created that were negative comments on my work. Like my original Andre the Giant has a posse sticker. Someone made a sticker that was identical, but it just says Andre the Giant is so passe. <laughs> and and I thought, you know, that's great. Yeah, sure. You know, anything that's been put out in the public space that becomes repetitive over time, you become numb to it, and and it has uh, the potential to become passe. And I love that because that that just um, gives me the motivation to try to keep my work evolving and um, and even the splasher on this past trip to New York I did as much or more work on the street than I've ever done and did the gallery stuff and all the press and everything because I, I like I like showing that um, you know I am tenacious so I'm going to do my thing and um, you know it's easy to become complacent when you've sort of uh, you know gotten to a point where the art and design world and the street art world are saying, okay, cool, your contribution is great. And then sometimes it takes something like, you know, like the splasher to uh, help you get the eye of the tiger back, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I don't know if I ever really lost it, but for me, I'm very stubborn and I'm very motivated. So anything like this just makes me uh, want to do more. And, and uh, so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm fine with it. I, um, I just feel bad for some of the other artists, um, who are my friends? Who I'm very, I'm very efficient about putting my work on the street. It's very fast. Um, but Swoon and WK Interact and Fail, um, they all are a little bit meticulous, more meticulous about what they do, and they're mm -hmm. all, um, they all have had the wind uh, slightly removed from their sails, and uh, and uh, you know, especially because they're such nice people. Uh, well, the irony in here particular is that people who are being picked on are some of the nicest people that do street art. I mean, street art's a very competitive realm, mm -hmm. and uh, 
there are plenty of people that are just uh, really, really um, ruthless thugs that are involved in, the, in this scene, and, and uh, none of the people that are being attacked by the splasher are those people, though. So. Do, you, do you think that there's anything antithetical about what the splasher has done with Banksy? I mean, I think that Banksy, you know, certainly has taken the world by storm. The work is being sold in galleries for hundreds of thousands of dollars now. Um, this is an artist that started on the street. Do you think that there is a change in the emotional and philosophical timbre to going from a street artist that is putting up work in the middle of the night for free and is risking being arrested, as you have many, many times, to going to um, auction, for example, with works being bought by Demi Moore for $750,000 or whatever it was that she spent on three or four of his pieces? Um, you know, I have always had a problem with um, me personally because of the origins of street art for me where it was that I was a populist and that I didn't want to pander to the elitist fine art world and I still don't think that I do. I still do street art. I still make $35 screen prints which people then flip on eBay for, uh, you know, triple, quadruple, hundreds of dollars. Oh yeah, I looked last night. It's astonishing. It's um, astonishing. And then, and I, but so, so I'm, I'm ignoring market forces to keep my stuff affordable to, for the people that I most relate to, the people that are skateboarders, punk rockers, college students, um, who my work could be a gateway into appreciating art on a level other than just album packaging or skateboard graphics or t-shirt graphics. I still make t-shirts that are affordable. Some people look at those items as that makes you a sellout. I actually feel like that's the most appropriate place for my work because I'm coming from this um, sort of rebellious, accessible standpoint. Now, on the other hand, making doing work in the galleries is an opportunity and selling it for more is an opportunity for me to actually spend a lot of time on a piece and really feel like I'm making, you know, if I may be so bold, masterpieces. And mm -hmm. when you're making works that have to be inexpensive, you have to find a balance between quantity and quality. And um, so for me, when I was first doing street art, putting posters up, I would just print a few of the posters for the street on thicker paper that I could sell. It was incredibly efficient, sell them for $20, $30. And, but now I have, a, I have a market where I, I can make pieces that I think maybe are um, you know, more sophisticated and will endure when, re, uh, when people see them in books as, you know, as part of art history. And I, I just am basically trying to work every angle. I think Banksy's doing the same thing. Banksy still does work on the street. It's free. You see it on the street, it's free. He still makes books. You know, I was talking to him when his book first came out, and he said that they, you know, the publisher forced him to do a hardcover first, but he couldn't wait until the soft cover that was only going to be 14 pounds, which is like $25, was going to come out because he wanted everybody to be able to get it. I mean, this is someone who they're making a lot of money on, with their art, but they're also really trying to keep what they're doing accessible. There have been other artists who have started as street artists because they knew it had a rebel cachet and that it would be a great marketing tool, and then they've just quickly transitioned into doing nothing but gallery sh shows, and the street art was was, uh, was, a, was opposed. It was a way to move up the ladder more quickly, and uh, I, don't, I don't respect that, but I'm not that person. Neither is Banksy, neither is Fail, neither is Swoon, neither is WK Interact. 
Go. Well, Shepard, I want to come back after our commercial break to talk a little bit about your history, your origins, how you got to the place that you got, the current work that you're doing as opposed to the controversy over the work. I'm really interested in getting your perspective on uh, how your work has evolved over the years. In the meantime, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to the 75th live broadcast and season four finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is the artist, Shepard Ferry. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow of Design Agency Resonate. Paul, when you're creating a brand for a client, the worlds you can create can become quite complex. Tell us about that. A specific example there is a promo we recently did for The Triangle, which is a new sci-fi series. Typically, those spots are pure imagination and pure complexity. In this case, it's a, The Triangle. It's this kind of fictionalized place where planes, boats, and people disappear. To create that kind of uh, mysterious world, we created all the components as layers by using After Effects. I'm talking about a layer app that uh, is 150 layers deep where uh, everything, every component from uh, lightning to waves to ships and 3D clouds and the rain are all rendered from the same scene as separate components. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about the future of design. Succeeding in your business isn't just about making a living. It's a way of life. Hosts Cliff Inenko and Susan Wilson-Solovic discuss the practical as well as the not-so-practical aspects of owning your own business. Tune in every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Succeeding in Your Business right here on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.34 Eastern Time, and you are listening to the 75th live broadcast and the Season 4 finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is artist Shepard Ferry. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you'd like to speak with Shepard, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. 
And, Shepard, we do have a caller. We have Gregory on the line. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Big congratulations on 75 shows. That's amazing. Oh, my God, amazing. I know. It's amazing. Surreal. Thank you. You have a question for Shep? Yes, I do. Um, you know, so many artists choose so many different paths, how they pursue a career as, as an artist, uh, certainly. Uh, Gregory, you're very artists. low. Can you speak I'm up sorry. for us, please? Um, artists choose so many different paths to follow as artists, certainly visual artists. What made you choose street art? I chose street art, I think, mostly because I was too chicken to uh, <laughs> send out slides and, you know, pound the pavement that way. I also have a background of um, skateboarding and, and punk rock, and both those cultures in the 80s were very marginalized, uh, you know, do-it-yourself cultures. Uh, you know, if the mainstream doesn't accept us, we're just going to make our own scene, and I think that I was bringing a bit of that philosophy into into what I was doing. Um, you know, I studied commercial illustration, but I didn't think that I ever wanted to be an illustrator. Um, and I took a lot of graphic design electives and photography electives and printmaking. And the thing that I got really excited by was screen printing because as an illustrator uh, doing paintings and drawings, I often felt uh, like I couldn't um, experiment enough because I'd either overwork a piece um, or or I felt like maybe I should take it further, but I was scared to, to change it and mess it up. And with screen printing, I felt like I had a lot of latitude for um, experimentation and in the process would have multiples. And then when I started getting into putting stickers and stencils up on the street, it was only logical that I use the, uh, use the screen printing that I had, to, uh, te techniques that I learned to make multiples to put stuff up on the street. So I think it was... Uh, it was you know, the convergence of several variables that made me choose street art. But I actually, when I graduated from college, um, was just working as a professional screen printer. And the street art wasn't really a career. It was just a hobby. And uh, as I realized I didn't want to pull a squeegee and screen print all day, I tried to learn graphic design a little better and learn the computer and uh, then went into graphic design. Well, I don't think you were chicken at all. I think you would have just been bored to tears to go to that conventional route, and obviously you found your way. So I, I applaud you, and I, I hope everything will be okay with you. And, Debbie, here's to another 75. Oh, gosh, thank you so much. Shepard, um, one of the things that I read in my research um, on you is that when people ask you what you do for a living, you say that you are a graphic designer. Is that true? Yes, and I'm a graphic designer. So, so, but you're you're clearly, I mean, you are a graphic designer, but you're also an artist and many, many other uh, different titles. One could be, one could apply to you. What? Well, why do you use graphic designer as your your main answer? Um, well, I think artist sounds pretentious, but uh, also why? I, why do you think it sounds pretentious? Um, because uh, every time I meet somebody that's uh, you know got a hippy dippy outfit on and they hand me a business card that says artist as the, their their profession, I just have to roll my eyes. It's um, I, I just think that the best way to describe what I do is I'm I'm a I'm a graphic communicator. Um, I'm trying to make mm, nice. images uh, with uh, you know a lot of times with with slogans incorporated, and I'm trying to communicate. And I really enjoy the poster format or the print format. And so, as a poster artist, I think people saw what I was doing. Um, people who who had uh, companies and wanted me to do graphic design because they felt communications in my posters would work well for products or advertising, and I was never opposed to that. I felt like uh, 
being a graphic designer was a great way to make a living and hone your skills. And you can, uh, for me, I could apply everything I was learning um, to, to my own poster work and, you know, if you want to call it artwork. But um, really, the uh, you know, what goes into both my graphic design and my artwork is, uh, is, is, is virtually identical with the exception of my artwork um, not dealing with anyone else's agenda except my own. So um, I still feel like my artwork falls under the realm of graphic design. Now, I know you've done uh, movie posters. You did a, the movie poster for Walk the Line, the recent Johnny Cash movie. Uh, you've done record covers for Billy Idol. I know that you have a record cover coming for the new Smashing Pumpkins CD in a few weeks. I know you've also done work for Dewar Scotch. Do you ever feel that that type of work is compromising in any way to your artistic vision or your um, philosophical mission? You know, I am lucky that I'm in a position now where um, I have enough revenue streams from the uh, T-shirts that I do, my artwork, and my design firm that I actually don't have to take on any work that would be uh, a compromise of what I want to achieve artistically. In years past, um, I definitely have had to uh, deliberate over a few projects because I was broke. I needed money. It wasn't something that I really felt was, uh, you know, something that, that was furthering my agenda as an artist. But the big question was, did it contradict my agenda as an artist or did it uh, undermine sort of my ethics as an artist? Um, and so I've turned down work in the past from uh, Hummer, uh, gas-guzzling vehicles, um, from uh, Camel Cigarettes, uh, from, I've taken work from Coca-Cola, and I've turned down other work from Coca-Cola. It all depends on the project. But at this point, uh, projects like Billy Idol or Walk the Line um, or the Smashing Pumpkins or Black Sabbath tour poster two summers ago, these are all bands that I'm a fan of and I'm proud to be associated with. Um, and especially with the new Smashing Pumpkins record, what they're trying to convey, um, the content of the album, uh, is very political. And... It was perfectly in step with what I'm trying to do as an artist, and it was, to me, just a beautiful marriage of art and commerce, and I um, will stand behind that 100% no matter what anyone says. Um, and, what, and I try to do as many projects um, like that as I can. What would be the uh, distinction between accepting one job from Coca-Cola and rejecting another? Well, one job uh, was just doing some graphics that were... Um, basic uh, ad supplement stuff that didn't necessarily look like my work. Mm -hmm. um, then another project was some work that was going to have a very uh, street art feel to it, and I felt like it would look like uh, I was a puppet of the Coca-Cola Corporation and uh, that it was a sellout move. So it, it really uh, – I'm not – I don't have a problem with Coca-Cola. I drink Diet Coke uh, daily. But um, but in terms of looking like I'm a pawn of Coca-Cola um, or that my integrity has been compromised by them, I don't want that. So, you know, it's a delicate... delicate. Yeah, no, it's uh, totally understandable. Um, we also have uh, Ruby on the line. Ruby, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Shepard. Hi. Um, I have a couple of questions. I mean, have you gotten caught putting your art up and... I also want to know if you put art up, like what other cities besides New York? Um, 
I have been caught putting my art up. I've been arrested 13 times. 13? Yeah. Um, and I've put my art up in almost every major city in the United States. I haven't done Denver, uh, St. Louis, um, and I can't really think of anywhere else. Um, it's a lot of places. Um, I mean, the stuff is ephemeral, though. Street art, it's, uh, you know, it can be up for, for, for days or weeks or years, but it's always impermanent, and sometimes it gets cleaned very quickly. But I, um, you know, I know that everything I put up will be seen, and um, that's incredibly empowering. I mean, a lot of people don't feel like they have a voice at all, and um, street art is a sure way to make sure that if you have, uh, if you just want to express yourself or you have political statements you want to make, that you can put it out there. So, I. Uh, you know, I, I, I do it anyway, even knowing that it's impermanent. Uh, Ruby, you said you had a couple of questions, or? The other one was just about cities and then also about getting caught. Well, um, you know, I, the places, uh, there's a lot of my work still up in um, San Francisco, in Los Angeles, um, New York. I know there's still a little bit of stuff in Philadelphia, um, Washington, D.C. I, um, you know, I, I, uh, I send stickers out to people that write me, but most of the stuff that anyone would see in any city was probably put up by, by me if it's a larger poster. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a two-year-old daughter and I haven't been traveling as much, so I think my, um, I just went to Japan and did a bunch of stuff over there and I just did a lot of new work in New York. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not doing as much street art as I was five years ago. That was probably the peak of my street art output. But surprisingly enough, no one else has really sort of... Uh, you know, uh, come up from the rear and uh, and done a ton of stuff. I mean, there's a, there's some great people out there doing stuff, but not no one's really done it on the same scale that you know that I have been. So I'm I'm excited to see who uh, who the next uh, awesome street artist is going to be. And so are we all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ruby. Um, Shepard, has there ever been a place or a country that you were shocked to see? Uh, the Andre the Giant has a posse sticker or the Obey poster or any of your street art? Well, I was um, I was in Australia a few years ago um, in Melbourne, and I did a lot while I was there and in Melbourne proper. And then one day um, after the art show that I was there for and it was over and we were kind of taking more of a, a nice day off, um, we drove to Bell's Beach, which is a really famous surf spot, and I got out of the car as we pulled up and saw a sign and went to go put a sticker on it, and there was a sticker already. And, uh, I mean, that was one of the only times where that's happened, um, where, you know, I know it wasn't me and I have no idea who it was, and I didn't see any of my stickers anywhere around Melbourne, so I just wasn't prepared for it. It was kind of shocking. But, I mean, I've been a couple other places where I've seen stickers um, where I wasn't expecting uh, driving up um, Northern California and some of those teeny towns around the vineyards. I saw a couple of stickers up that way that, uh, you know, I had no idea how they got there. But, you know, it's like a chain letter. I've, I've sent stickers out so, so many places, and people have made their, made their own variations, and uh, it's just gotten around um, in unimaginable ways. I had no idea what... Um, what I, what I was starting when I, when I made this sticker. <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting because I, I, a theme that I, I'm really, really um, intrigued by is, well, if that would have happened, then that wouldn't have happened, and then that wouldn't have happened, and then that wouldn't have happened. And uh, life's progression of the journeys that we take and how, where we start and where we end up. 
And any idea what your life might be like if you hadn't actually created that first single sticker? You know, it was a really lucky, happy accident um, that ended up um, sort of opening my eyes to uh, a lot of the control of public space, trend-driven psychology, um, Heidegger's theory of phenomenology, situationism. Um, and I don't know what else. I think I'm naturally inquisitive, but I don't know what else might have catalyzed my interest in all those things. Um, there's no way There's no way for me to say. I mean, I made another sticker back around the same time that's in my book that was a friend of ours that... Um, he looked kind of like the Gerber baby, but he had a mohawk, so I made a Gerber baby with a mohawk. I was into all these, you know, sort of pop art references, and uh, mm. still, still am to a degree. But some people back then said, On, that Andre sticker's stupid. I like the Gerber baby one. Keep making that one and don't make the Andre one. So who knows if the public, if I if I had just listened to any one of those people, if the public response to Gerber baby would have been, uh, <laughs> not you know, uh, as as strong um, or not as strong. You, you never know, but... Uh, you know, I, I, um, I think that for me what did happen was that I did pay attention to sort of the, uh, w- the phenomena the sticker was bringing to light and sort of the dialogue with the public that it was creating. Because a lot, a lot of people, um, you know, as I say, but, but, you know, check this out. Look what, look what happened with this and this and this and this. Um, uh, you know, so many examples I could go into. Other people said, what are you talking about? You're just making some stupid sticker. Don't try to play it up like it's anything great. <laughs> and then I still don't think it's anything great, but I but I do think that, uh, you know, there was something there that was fascinating that, um, you know, there was, when people don't, uh, when, when people see something repetitively and they don't know how to interpret it, they become curious. Each person's um, interpretation is a reflection of their personality, like a Rorschach test. Perceived power becomes actual power because you have a platform. And I think that a lot of these things um, that I was able to recognize and build on, other people didn't. And uh, so I can at least take credit in that in that capacity. Shepard, we have another caller on the line. We have Kim from New York. Kim, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi there. Um, I have a two-part question. First part is, uh, Shepard, now that you have a child, how has your perspective on work changed? And then... Secondly, will you be encouraging her to scale billboards in the middle of the night with a bucket of wheat paste? Is this Kimberlyn? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> you didn't talk to me long enough at my art show. Um, but I'll, I'll let you off the hook since we're, we're on the air. I'll give you a brief later. Um, Thanks, how has uh, having a child, here's how having a child has affected my art. Um, you know, I, uh, I think that in society, much of the time, the male, um, dominant, aggressive, I'm gonna I'm gonna make my way and rule things. Um, mentality is rewarded, and um, the maternal side of things is definitely not um, valued as much. I think in in uh, you know, and it's like gender politics aren't necessarily my thing, but I've just noticed this since having a baby. Uh, you know, it's a patriarchal society, but seeing how um, my wife. Um, is with our daughter and realizing how much work it is and um, that I'd be screwed without her help and that it's our this sort of yin and yang that allows the family unit to function in a really amazingly positive way. Um, I really have kind of tapped into, uh, I guess, uh, more of my feminine side, uh, appreciating the maternal side of things. 
I definitely have more respect for my own mother and all mothers and all women. Um, and so a lot of the work that I've been doing, it's uh, sort of dealing with um, with peace and uh, using a lot of female figures. I think that um, one of the things that I thought about was um, it's usually men that perpetuate injustice and they take up arms to do so. And when women take up arms, I think they do it to correct an injustice. This is a generalization, of course. I mean, there are people like Margaret Thatcher out there, but, um, you know, it's... it's um, so. It's a generalization, but it's, it's, uh, I think where a lot of the work that I was doing, um, was about, like, be as, uh, sort of, uh, agitational and provocative as possible. Um, now I'm still trying to make the work really engaging and provocative, but also deal with, uh, allow, allow beauty, the merit of beauty and, and, and the maternal side of things to show through in some of the elements of my work. And I think that's, uh, been a much bigger factor in the last two years. And um, yes, my daughter is already putting up stickers. She loves it. She uh, when we're waiting for uh, a table at a restaurant and I'm outside, I just you know I can't help myself. I'm always putting stickers up. And then um, when I put a sticker up, and then she tries to copy me, I say, Yeah, you have to push the sticker down. So so she says, Dad, I push, push, and she will try to reach in my pockets and grab stickers. And uh, it was very entertaining at the art show. I kept giving her stickers, and she kept running around and putting them like feet off the ground on stuff. But uh, people didn't believe me that my two-year-old already knew how to put stickers up. But yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I'll encourage her. I'll, you know, I, I've got enough experience to warn her about, uh, you know, how to watch out for the cops and stuff. So. Well, thank you for calling, Kim. It's really great to hear your voice for both of us, um, Shepard. It's really interesting that that you talk about this new sort of female. Um, aesthetic that, that you're including in your work, because I was looking at some of the new work, um, seeing the new shows, and then going back and looking at the body of work that you have in supply and demand, and I realized that for the first time, we're seeing a lot of female characters in the work that you're currently doing. Aside from Joan Jett, I don't really remember a large amount of female figures uh, prominently displayed in your work. Is that something that uh, was consciously done, or are you just uh, sort of thinking about well, that now as, as, we, as this comes up? I think that most, um, I think that, you know, Joan Jett or, um, or Debbie Harry uh, or, or um, Angela Davis, people who have been included in my work, they sort of succeeded in a male realm. Yes, mostly. Very and, much. So. And um, and so you know, I've always been really into punk rock and and hard rock and roll. And uh, Joan Jett, I loved that. You know, she was a badass. Um, uh, Angela Davis, uh, you know, very outspoken. Um, you know, militant. Uh, Debbie Harry is probably the only one out of those three who still kind of kept a feminine side, but she still emerged from the CBGB's punk rock scene. Yeah, she was um, sexy. I think that's the the bigger you know, difference. But, um, but, you know, I think there, I was attracted mostly to doing images that were either cautionary images of dictators saying, uh, yeah, you know, the power of the visuals and the icons of these people is incredibly um, it's seductive and, and, uh, and they were great speakers, they were demigods, but, but um, you need to, uh, you, you need to, to uh, be careful about how much power you give them. Um, and then... And then conversely, I was doing a lot of portraits of people from punk rock or people like Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers or, um, or counterculture heroes 
who were mostly men because, you know, they were aggressive uh, risk-takers. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I was just really looking at people that, that shook the world up, and the majority of those people were men. And, uh, and now I, um, you know, I still think that those, those people are important, but, um, but I'm definitely looking at how society needs to function in a more balanced way, I think, giving, uh, giving equal uh, worth to uh, both the male and female perspective. Now, looking back at the, the first uh, pieces of art that you created, the Andre the Giant has a posse sticker, all the way now to the work in E Pluribus Venom, Power to Obey the People, how would you say your work has evolved? How would you describe that evolution? Well, I began early on with the Andre sticker as just sort of a uh, a Dada pop culture reference, and um, my my initial posters and stickers that I were making that I was making um, were mostly hijacking the cultural currency of things that were already established, like putting Andre's face um, with Jimi Hendrix's afro and his and his psychedelic background, or Andre with Gene Simmons' makeup. And early on, my, my idea was I liked the coup of making something silly seem more important than it was by associating it with things that were more established. So putting Andre's face in the, the uh, Neil Armstrong first moonwalk photograph. Basically uh, hijacking and uh, sort of, you know, desecrating pop iconography. I guess I was just doing pop art. And uh, but then in around 1995, um, I felt like, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of interesting um, stuff going on with um, people thinking that the posters w- that I was making w- were, uh, were from a cult or, um, or not understanding and feeling um, threatened by them. And then that made me think of all the things that people are assaulted with in American society that they should be threatened by that they aren't. Um, they don't consume with enough discretion they're easily manipulated by politicians. And I also watched a movie called They Live. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's a John Carpenter movie. And the premise of the movie is um, that aliens are running the, the, the earth. The white-collar worker, I mean, the blue-collar worker doesn't realize it because they're so caught up in the daily grind that they don't realize that the authoritarians, the police, uh, you know, the politicians, um, the the the, the, the media, they're all, um, they're all part of this alien conspiracy to, uh, to sort of herd the masses into domesticated livestock that work for, work for the aliens. And it's uh, funny enough, Rowdy Roddy, it's a really silly movie, but it's a, it's a fairly profound premise, I think. Uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper stumbles on these sunglasses that have been developed so that you can see the aliens. You can only see the aliens with the sunglasses on. And when he looks at advertisements, they say things like, consume, watch television, Obey. Oh, yeah, it's that's really interesting. My, I haven't seen the movie. My producers are, are furiously uh, texting me now, saying we've seen it. It's amazing. That's where he got Obey from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, uh, yeah. So that was, um, you know, I saw that movie. I was a fan of Barbara Kruger's work already, and I felt like a lot of what they were touching on and they live was Barbara Kruger esque. Um, yes. And yes. and. Um, and so I, uh, I decided, you know, I want to be more provocative with what I'm doing. I had also uh, really um, gotten into propaganda posters, especially Russian constructivism. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to start to integrate the word obey because I felt like, what's the thing that people do the most that I think um, 
they want to do the least, and that's be obedient. But they follow the path of least resistance, and they make excuses why they're, you know, they're unhappy with their routine, but they're going to stick with it anyway. And I felt that um, being confronted with the word obey would make people have to deal with a lot of this and maybe make them take action. So in a sense, it was reverse psychology. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not saying disobey, but it was more of a question authority, question everything. Um, a word that I felt might provoke that. And I also wanted to take my work away from this sort of silly under the giant um, perspective, more towards a big brother is watching you Orwellian critique of what's going on in society. And, uh, and, and um, I felt like uh, Russian constructivism, Barbara Kruger's aesthetic, and um, some of the stuff that Robbie Canal, the poster artist Robbie Canal had done, was, uh, was, was the direction I wanted to move in. And... Um, this is uh, this is extremely important and um, probably as uh, much of a, of a persuasive factor as any of the other things. Um, I was making a lot of my posters on the machines at Kinko's, and I figured out how to uh, rig those with a paper clip to give free copies because I was broke. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a red toner cartridge and a black toner cartridge. So I would ru- I would make bold images that I could run through the copier once for red and once for black and get them free and have 11 by 17 posters. So my color palette was basically being dictated by my aesthetic as well as some of my, um, some, some of my interests. So, you know, it was, uh, the deal was sealed by, by the Kinko's um, thing, even though I was probably already moving in the direction of, of using red, black, and white anyway. Wow, Shepard, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. I wish that we can go on for the rest of the afternoon, but I know that you're recovering and, I have this radio schedule I have to adhere to at Voice America. But I just wanted to end the the broadcast by reading a quote uh, from your book, Supply and Demand, The Art of Shepard Ferry, the book Obey. And this is a quote that you published by somebody called Zephyr, and, and this was about your work from his perspective. And he says, I've been called obsessed before. I may have even said it about myself once or twice. But all things are relative, right? Shepard Ferry is the most obsessed artist I've ever met. I don't believe there's anyone living as committed to spreading their art around the planet as Shepard is. Thank God he's a great fucking artist who does beautiful, thought-provoking work, or we might be bumming out right now, begging him to stop. So thanks for doing your thing, Shepard, and stay safe out there. We need you to keep on doing it. But you're obsessed, so we know you ain't gonna ever stop. And I love that quote, and I wanted to thank you for being on the show. And I want to let our listeners know that we've come to the end of our broadcast and the season four finale of Design Matters. For the rest of the year, we'll be rebroadcasting the entire season, beginning with Malcolm Gladwell next week. Again, thank you very much, Shepard. Yeah, thanks so like much to for give, having me. Oh, it's been an absolute honor. I'd also like to give this very special thanks to our year-long, two years-long Adobe sponsor, our sponsor Adobe, for their kindness and their generosity. Big thanks to Brian Travis, Ruben Gloom, and Jeff at Voice America for always doing their very best to help me sound as professional as possible. Enormous gratitude to my homegirls, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and the man that always gets me up on iTunes and bails me out of trouble, Chris O'Rourke. Big love to Edwin Rivera for all his help with my writing. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to all my dear Design Matters listeners. I love your emails. I love your feedback. For truly, this show would not be possible without you. Thank you for listening. And please remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference. 
or we can do both. I am Debbie Nolman, and I look forward to talking with you in 2008. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Milne. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.